morning, everybody. Good to see you all. This is the uh, this is the first time I think I've been up preaching since November, since before our, our baby was born. So it's great to see you from this perspective and not this perspective. So um, my wife and baby are right over here, so feel free to say hi to them uh, whenever. Yeah. And we're going to be continuing on in our, in our Gospel Foundations series this morning. Um, just to remind you a little bit of a recap of what the Gospel Foundations series is. Um, the Gospel Foundations, we're going through major redemptive moments in the history of God's people. How he called a people, how he's sustaining that people, how he made a covenant with that people, and, and then saves them over and over throughout their history. And really how God's mercy and God's grace and God's power is what's sustaining them. And today we're, we're talking about Judges. And Judges is a very interesting book in the Bible. If you've not read all the way through Judges, I would cautiously advise you to go ahead and read through the whole thing. Actually, for sure do it. Just if you're under, you know, 12, make sure your parents are with you. Um, it's a pretty crazy book. And, and in all reality, Judges is a tragedy. It is, it is a, a story that does not have a happy ending and leaves a lot of questions. And really, it's a story of what happens when God's people worship God plus God and something else. And God foresaw this challenge, this thing that would come up against Israel as jo- uh, Joshua was transitioning out of power. So at the end of Joshua, he had taken the mantle of leadership from Moses, brought the people into the promised land. He had driven out the nations that they had come across, and he had reinstituted, reconfirmed the covenant um, between God and Israel. Joshua was a good leader. Even though he was afraid at first, the Lord came and said, be strong and courageous, I'll be with you. And Joshua took the mantle of leadership and led them well. And so at the end of Joshua's life, as they are residing in the promised land, he says, hey guys, there's a lot of good that we have done, but there's a lot still to do. And there's a lot that you need to take on from this moment. We're not sure if if Joshua had intended to put leaders in place, uh, if there weren't any, or if they were just so terrible at it that they're not mentioned in the Bible. But either way, we know that that didn't happen very well. Here's what Joshua says to the children of Israel at the end of that book. So, so around the same time as that famous verse, choose this day whom you will serve, but for me and my house we will serve the Lord. Here's some other instructions that he gives them. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And so he says, essentially, will you do this? And the the passionate moment that they were in, evidently, they were all in at that moment. When he asked them, He said, will you do this? He said, no, Joshua, we will reject the gods. We will serve the Lord with you. They say it a few times at the end of Joshua. So you read the first couple verses of Judges, and it starts off well. God comes, or they say, hey, who should we send to go up against these nations to drive them out? And and the Lord speaks to them, says, send Judah. So they go, they start driving nations out. But very quickly, it goes downhill. Seven times in the first chapter of Judges, it's repeated, and they did not drive out. And they did not drive out this nation. And they did not drive out that nation. Many tribes fail to drive out the nations that are around them. 
So what does driving out even represent in this context? Because I know this is a touchy subject, especially in our day and age, driving out nations and and genocide is brought up a lot. We're not going to touch on that today, but what did it represent for them? It wasn't just conquest for the sake of conquering people. It was conquest for the sake of purity and holiness and being set apart. And by the way, the nations around them were worshiping gods that would call for child sacrifice regularly. So God is purifying the land and he wants his people to remain separate and holy so that they could be a light to the nations and draw the nations in. But we know for sure that people did not do that. So they probably thought to themselves, we're in a strong place right now. We're not going to go after these other gods. It's okay if we don't totally push everything out. Even though God had called them to totally drive out, they said, yeah, we've done, we've done most of that. There's no way we're going after these other gods. And This is the first thing I want us to notice is that our our slide away from God usually begins with small compromises. Things that we don't think are a big deal. We obey God 98%, 99%, but there's that one area of life where we say, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. It's not, maybe it's not even technically a sin, but something God's asked you to do and, and you ignore that voice of the Lord. And so Judges is a story about what happens when we, mostly purify ourselves. When we almost go all the way, but not 100%. It it shares about the the downward spiral of God's people as they don't have as much strength as they thought they had, as they begin to partake in the gods of the other nations and get influenced. And so Judges is all about these cycles of sin, participating in this idolatry, then slavery or oppression by a nation, then they cry out supplication, and then A savior comes, or a judge is the word that this book uses, a deliverer to bring them out of that circumstance. They become free, and what do they do with their freedom? They go back to sin. And so it's cycles over and over. But we've got the judges, right? Judges are good. Well, sadly, the judges get worse and worse and worse as the book of Judges goes on as well. You start with three pretty good judges, Othniel and Ehud and Deborah, and they're they're people of pretty good character who do pretty well. And the next three judges are Jephthah and Gideon and Samson. These people get worse and worse. And by by the time we get to Samson, who who we're going to be talking about today, we see that Samson is a person riddled with weakness and with compromise as he does not fully serve the Lord in every area. So go ahead and turn with me to Judges 16. We're going to be in Judges 16 verses 1 through 20. We're going to read that together. Uh, Samson's story actually starts in chapter 13, and we'll talk a little bit about his backstory in a bit, but we're going to jump into the, the part of the story that we're the most familiar with, which is Samson and Delilah. So Judges 16, verses 1 through 20, and I'm reading out of the ESV today. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman. I love that. It just moves right on. He carried this gate to the top of a hill. After this, he loved a woman. This is an awesome Old Testament storytelling. It really is. Um, Samson was a strong dude. I think that was the point of that. After this, he loved a woman, and in the valley of Sorek, uh, whose name was Delilah. 
And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. (coughs) So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Hypothetically, Man, if, you're, if your woman comes to you saying this, uh, alarm bells might go off. They should. But they don't for Samson. He says, um, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the, of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now, when, now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arm like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then shall I become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. She made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How long can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man." When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines and said, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought money in their hands. (coughs) She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, uh, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for examples like Samson in Scripture that you are not ashamed to put the incredible weaknesses and failures and rebellions of your people into Scripture for us to learn from that you may be glorified. And Lord, even more surprising, we see Samson in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. You mention him as if there's something to be admired. And Lord, we know that it was only that he returned to you in faith that is to be admired. So Lord, I pray that today, as we, as we look at Samson and the ways, the cautions from his life that we can learn from, I pray that you would help us to, to look on you with faith, Lord, to, to return to you as we also have rebelled <coughs> and that you would Help us even more, Lord, to fix our eyes on Jesus in the process. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are, there are three lessons from this story that I want to uh, break down a little bit today. And um, 
things that I think we can really learn from and that are very relevant to us. Uh, the three lessons are first, calling without character leads to compromise. Calling without character leads to compromise. Second, strength without surrender leads to self-sufficiency. And third, repentance and reliance leads to redemption. So first, let's start with calling without character leads to compromise. It's very clear that Samson had an intense calling on his life. In fact, his origin story, as his, as his mother and father are learning of who he is, is as significant as almost anybody else in Scripture. Um, it's similar to that of, of Samuel or John the Baptist or Jesus, where there's an appearance, there's a, a calling, an impartation of who this person is. In fact, Yahweh himself likely is the one coming and and making this proclamation. It says the angel of the Lord came to them. And when you see the angel of the Lord in scripture, almost every time it is actually God himself. There's reasons for that we won't talk about today. But in many of the other stories, it's just an angel coming. So there's a significant calling. He says, set him apart. Let him be a Nazarite. A couple of the vows that a Nazarite made were to not drink wine and to not uh, cut their hair. There are other requirements as well. But essentially, this person is set apart for a work by the Lord. So there's a significant calling on Samson's life. But then we also see that Samson never formed the character, never formed the character as a foundation to sustain the weight of the calling that had been given to him. Look at the first verse of our passage today, chapter 16. <coughs> Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went, in and went into her. And then it moves on with the story. This is just... Normal, everyday stuff for Samson. I'm going to go see a prostitute in this city when I go, go into it. And this is not the, not the first time he's been seduced by a woman, especially who is not of Israel. That's actually already happened in chapter 14 and will happen again just later in our passage. So Samson clearly has a weakness that he has never submitted to the Lord. He has an element of his character that he is not willing to surrender to God. It's really important that we realize that God's calling in our life is not a guarantee of its fulfillment. I'm not talking about election, calling to salvation. I'm talking about calling to a task. That God is saying, you are called to this. Just because he said it does not mean it is guaranteed to happen. Now, he will accomplish his will, no matter what. But how you walk in that calling is very much up to the response. God's calling is an invitation to you. An invitation to surrender to what it means to grow in that calling and to be shaped in that calling. And the scary thing is that God will not always take away the giftings and the talents of a person who is living in sin. We all have probably seen this, right? We, we expect that that person we know is living in sin, maybe public figures, they're still incredibly gifted sometimes. And we can actually remain gifted and talented in certain areas and not be walking with good character. That is a scary thing. I have a friend back from middle school, high school days, who I um, really grew in the Lord with. Um, he was somebody that I began leading prayer groups with, and we would get together and pray and study the word and talk about what God was doing in our lives. He was the, the closest spiritual brother I had for quite a long season. And near the end of high school, uh, he was a drummer. In fact, I took lessons from his dad, and so we, we played a lot uh, together. And he said, hey, I felt like I needed to pull my car over the other day. And the Lord said, I'll give him a, a different name. This isn't his name, but Sam you know that you're called to glorify me through music. I says, praise the Lord. So he set himself on a trajectory to go and glorify the Lord through music. He started practicing every day. He developed that talent. 
And then after high school, he moved to Denver where the music scene was a little bit better. We were in Colorado Springs. Moved to Denver, then he moved to L.A. Within a couple years, there was no distinguishing between his character and the character of everyone else in Los Angeles. And I think, unfortunately, he was deceived into thinking that he was living out his calling. He was deceived into thinking that because I'm using the talents and people like it and I'm on good teams and I still technically profess belief in Christ, that he's living out his calling. That's not the case. We, we, we actually have a responsibility not just to use the talents, but to be so distinguished in our character that it actually shines glory on God. And this is just a friend of mine, but many of you probably know people who are similar. We've probably all had heroes of the faith who have been caught in some kind of immorality. Even as recently as this month, many of you would know what I'm talking about. It's very sad to see. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What does that mean? Does it mean we literally can't do anything? Obviously not, because there are people with no character who are doing some pretty incredible things. There are people who are doing incredible humanitarian work overseas out of a totally wrong motivation. What God is saying here is nothing of eternal significance can be done unless you fully are abiding in me, trusting in me, and living out in the way that I'm calling you to in the midst of your calling. Here's the thing that Judges shows us that God's going to accomplish his will no matter what. God's going to get the people out of slavery. And the question for us is, are we going to be those who are used of God in the process in a way that he delights in, in a way that we can be useful in his hands, or is God going to accomplish his will in spite of us? So I encourage you to look at your calling today, and more than look at your calling, even those of you who feel, I don't know what my calling is, that's actually not the most important question. Do you have the character that's being formed into the image of Christ that will be able to bear the weight of any calling that God puts on your life? Second point, strength without surrender leads to self-sufficiency. Strength without surrender leads to self-sufficiency. Judges goes out of its way to show how powerful Samson was. Let me just read through some of the things that he does. These are unbelievable. I mean, we've heard these as children, but this really happened. Judges 14.6, it says he tore a lion to pieces. That's how the Bible puts it. Tore a lion to pieces, even though he had nothing in his hands. Judges 14.19, he struck down 30 men of Ashkelon to settle some bet on a riddle that he had made. Judges 15.4-5, he catches 300 foxes and causes them to set fire to the Philistine fields. So he catches 300 foxes. This isn't just a big bulky guy. He's agile. He's, I mean, he's got it all, I guess. Except for intelligence at some points. Um, judges 15, 15, he kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. He, uh, judges 16, 3, he carries an entire city gate up a hill. And then Judges 16, 30, at the end of the story, he topples an entire temple by pushing the pillars apart, killing 3,000 Philistines. Judges leaves no question that Samson's strength was unparalleled, but it also becomes apparent that Samson's strength, his great strength, became his weakness. It became his weakness because there was no ultimate surrender to God, recognition of the fact that God alone was empowering him, that his strength was completely dependent on the sustaining power of God. And so because he started to believe his strength was of himself, he became self-sufficient. And God sees this as a problem that will present itself to his people all throughout time, especially people who are privileged. And every one of us in this room is a privileged believer in the way that we live in a, an affluent society. Let me explain. God knew that when Israel was going to enter into the promised land, they were going to get to a point 
where they had everything they needed. They had wealth, they had homes, they had the land, they had peace. In Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 18, Moses says this as his parting, part of his parting instructions. He says to the Israelites before they enter the promised land, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and lived in them and when your heads are, are, sorry, herds and flocks multiply. We don't want heads multiplying, but herds and flocks is fine. And your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Then your heart may be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand have gotten me this wealth. I believe that we have a dangerous tendency to pursue self-sufficiency in our day and age. We live in an affluent society. As chaotic as this year has been, and as much uncertainty, uncertainty and instability that we see around the nation, it's still true that we live in a very safe and a very affluent society. And many of us, even the poorest of us, are richer than so much of the world. And so there is a danger to, to get fixated on building our own kingdoms rather than building God's kingdom, participating in his kingdom work. I know just for, for Molly and I over the last few years, we got much more intentional about our, our budget uh, multiple years ago. And we started to see some really cool steps in that. We're not wealthy by any means. Don't get that idea. But we are um, we're making some great steps. And um, it's really tempting for me to to fixate on that and wonder, well, how can I get a little more? How could I, where could I be in, in five years or 10 years from now? It's not wrong to steward. It's, it's actually very right to steward. It's, it's not wrong to plan. It's very good to plan. But I have to check my heart. Where, where is my treasure really? I, am I still more concerned with fulfilling the calling, with pleasing the Lord, with trusting him with the future? Or do I start to get the sense that if I keep going down this road, if I made this much, then I could control these variables and I could make sure I have this kind of home I get very tempted to do that. I have to check my heart with feeling that I'm actually in control of the, of the quote-unquote strength that the Lord has put in my hands. Because Samson had constant access to so much strength, his surrender to God had to be regular and an intentional choice, but he never made that a habit in his life. Instead, he began to become self-sufficient, expecting that he would be able to save and sustain himself no matter what. And I actually think that Samson got to a point where he thought the strength God had given him was actually his. And here's how, I, here's how I come to that conclusion. At the very end of our passage, 1620, he's bound with all these things. He's snapped off ropes. He's, I mean, he's killed thousands of men. He's picked up city gates and put them at the top of a hill just because he can. Then he, he, he actually discloses the secret that, that was the vows that he had made before the Lord. And I think he really thought, that's not even going to affect me. I will still be able to do it. She says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and break free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And sometimes I think we really do get deceived into thinking that we have control over this or that in our lives, that we can build our kingdoms up to such, a, to such an extent where we could live, live self-sufficiently. Think about this. Think about riding in a plane. I've probably told this analogy in this church before, maybe multiple years ago, but you take off in a plane. You feel the power of that plane lift you into the air. You see yourself rise above the clouds. You're looking across and seeing you know, that pillow top cloud, and it's just amazing. I mean, I remember the first time I felt that plane lift off the ground. You are aware of the power of that plane. But what if you, two or three hours into the flight, you're like, man, 
I am really good at flying. I am so good. You nudge your seatmate. Hey, I don't know if you noticed, but I took off back there. I've been flying for about two and a half hours. It's not a big deal, but I did. Uh, then, you, then you look at the plane. You say, hey, plane, you've been great. Um, I appreciate your help. But we did this together, though, right? Like, we, we both. We both have been flying, right? We're friends. Okay, I'm going to jump out of the plane, fly next to you the rest of the way. Okay, that's ridiculous. But that's exactly what we do every time we start to walk in our own sufficiency rather than casting ourselves daily on the sufficiency of Christ. When we start to trust in our own resources rather than remembering that's God who has given us the power to even get the wealth, power to even be healthy. God grants us everything that we need. And I just ask you today, as a, <coughs> as a church, as individuals, that we not be people who, who look back on past accomplishments, look forward to what we're going to achieve and take more pride in that than, more, than boasting in the Lord himself, than, than throwing ourselves on him. Like James says, let's not say, tomorrow I'll do this, and, and next I'll do that. Let's say, if the Lord wills, right? Let's remember that it's God who gives us strength and submit and surrender to that first. Um, that's one reason why I think it's significant we're in this month of prayer and fasting, humbling ourselves as a church and asking him to lead and to guide us. Let's be participating in that as a body. Lastly, last point is repentance and reliance leads to redemption. Repentance and reliance leads to redemption. In the ending of this story, Samson becomes kind of an enactment of the whole nation of Israel. Samson has compromised, then he's fallen into oppression, he's fallen into slavery by the Philistines, then he cries out in 16 verse 28, O Lord, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. So he calls out, and the Lord, again, comes in and rescues. The one who's in the place of the judge in Samson's story is God himself. God is the one who comes in and rescues Samson. And we see here, as in every other place in this story, that God is actually the one whose mercy and power and grace have saved every time, even though he's been using flawed heroes to do it. But what's interesting to me is that God could have come and sent an earthquake and collapsed the temple and ended it. Right? So, so Samson's taken into the, the temple of the Philistines. They're worshiping. Samson ends up pushing down the pillars and collapsing the whole thing on them. So God could have sent an earthquake to do that, right? He could have incited another nation and brought them up against them to destroy the Philistines. God could have snapped his fingers or spoken a word and all of them would have fallen dead. But it's interesting that he still uses Samson. At his weakest, at his most compromised state, he uses Samson. The reasons that he did this, I think there's a few of them. First, I think that God is shown to be merciful as he continually over and over re uh, responds and forgives those who wrong him, who turn their back on him, Samson forsaking his vow. God is shown merciful. God is shown faithful. He gave Samson a calling, and as Samson turned back to him, God still allowed him to walk out in that calling. And God is shown more glorious as he uses those weak and broken people there's nothing to even come close to, to rivaling his glory, to competing for attention in this story. Perhaps you're in this room today and you, you don't need any convincing that you are at the end of your rope, that you are not self-sufficient. You don't need any convincing that you have flaws in your character. You've already been through the ringer and failed and seen your weakness, and maybe you're asking, can God even still use me? Can God even still meet me? And I, am I worth anything to him? Like Samson, you should be comforted that the ultimate redemption in this story lies in God's hands, God's sufficiency, God's mercy, not your own. 
that God is ready to listen and hear every cry from you and to redeem your story. As our video at the beginning mentioned, this book keeps repeating, and there was no king in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I think it's interesting that the author of this book, the the physical, earthly, human author, probably was looking forward to the earthly kings that would come and, and reminding them, remember, in those days, there wasn't a king, but now it's better. We have kings. Maybe, maybe that's what he was saying. But the, but the heavenly, the Holy Spirit, the author who was running through it all, he, I think it's so cool that he implanted this phrase over and over to show that there would be another king. There would be another like Samson, but nothing like Samson, right? There's similarities between the, those two figures. Samson and this coming Messiah would both have incredible origin stories. Both would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Both would conquer an oppressor. But unlike Samson, Christ was perfect in the way that he lived. Christ was faithful in every way. And unlike Samson, he didn't get taken into oppression and hostil- uh, in, um, in captivity. Jesus submitted himself willingly of his own free will to oppression and hostility. He laid down his life rather than having it taken from him. Worship team, you can go ahead and come on up and we're going to head toward our our time of ministry. The best part of the story of Samson, and especially as you look toward the story and see your own failures in his life, the best part of this for you is that you don't have to be Samson. And in fact, you're not Samson. While we can all, you know, relate to the weaknesses and the failures of Samson, we're not the ones who have to save ourselves. We're not the ones who have to have the strength. We have the Samson who's already come. We have Christ who has already done everything for us. Your first and foremost responsibility is to turn, return, repent, rely. Throw yourself on the sufficiency of Christ. But I also don't want us to stop at, good, I'm washed and I'm forgiven. The other part of the story with Jesus is that while he was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit never left him, he also has opened the door for us to be filled and dwelt and and have the Holy Spirit never leave us and empower us to do the things we could not outside of Christ. Empower us to say yes, to live in righteousness, to walk out those things that we only have seen weakness in ourselves before. Jesus is the Samson that we look to today, the perfect one, the one who would be king over his people forever. So I invite you to to just reevaluate on these three points. Let's go ahead and stand, and I will just talk for a moment on the, (coughs) the three points. Maybe you see there are character flaws that you need to confess and repent of today. There are things that might hold your calling back that will not sustain the weight of, of the calling that's on your life. I encourage you, if the Holy Spirit's convicting those character issues today to find somebody to pray. Maybe you realize a tendency towards self-sufficiency. Maybe the things that you rely on are not sins. It's just the temptation to rely more on yourself, more on your ability to accomplish than God to sustain you. And maybe you are in the the last point that you feel the weight of the condemnation. You feel that you've already failed. And and the answer to you today is just repent. Just come back. God will accept you just as he did Samson instantly and answered his his cry. He will answer us as we call to him. I'm going to ask the prayer team, anybody who's on the prayer team today um, or willing to pray, to go ahead and move to the sides of the auditorium um, or, or along the sides of the front as well and get ready to pray for people. And we're going to head into uh, one or two more worship songs and then close in a little bit. So let's, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for 
um, for your immense and immeasurable grace and mercy. We pray, God, now that the Holy Spirit do a work that my preaching can't. God, I pray that you would speak, that you would awaken hearts and minds. And, and Lord, help us to see areas of our life that we are keeping from you. Those, that 1%, God, that we are not willing to turn over to you. Help us to surrender all today, God. God, I pray that those parts of our character that we know are lacking and we feel frustrated and maybe we've confessed a hundred times, a million times. God, I pray today for a powerful work of the Holy Spirit in each and every life, Lord, as, as we confess sin, as we renounce those areas of our character that would, that would not honor and glorify you. God, I pray for transformation in this body that we would look more and more like Christ every day, that we would love each other as you have loved us. God, I pray that, uh, that in this closing time of worship, Jesus would be lifted high and the Holy Spirit would have full reign to do his work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You are here.